Welcome to Movies Charles Hasn't Seen, episode 79. My name is Crossman. I'm Wilson. And I'm Charles. And each week, Wilson and I share a classic movie we have seen that Charles has not seen. This week, we watched the 1986 movie Blue Velvet. So, Charles, give us a synopsis. Okay, so the main character is a guy named Jeffrey who finds a dismembered ear in a yard while he's walking through it, decides to give it to a police detective he knows to investigate, and the police detective's daughter gives him some more information. He, she says that the ear seems to be tied to um, this singer named Dorothy Valens who lives in some apartment. So he goes and tries to investigate and ends up discovering that Dorothy Valens' husband and child have been held hostage um, by this terrible guy named Frank Brandt. And he investigates further, and there's ties between Frank and the police department and drugs and things like that. But he eventually, like, digs up or takes some photos and gives the evidence to the police detective. Um, and they do end up busting the operation. Uh, he almost gets killed by Frank, um, but manages to shoot Frank first. And then everything gets resolved, and it's all mostly okay. Dorothy Valens gets her son back. Yeah, so the, the way you describe that movie, it makes it, it sound like, a, like totally a, normal. Yeah, just like a straight ahead, like... I can't stop <laughs> and describe all the David Lynch stuff. Yeah, but that's kind of one of the funny things about this movie, right? Like, when you just sit down and describe what happens in it, it's like, yep, yeah, that's a basic, like, procedural. And, yeah. and, like, there's cops and robbers and stuff, and they figure it out. The mystery at the end, and that's that. Um, that's not what happens in this movie, though, right? Like that, I mean, that is the events of this movie, but yeah. that's not what the experience of watching it is. In any yeah. in any sense at all, this this was my pick uh, for for Blue Velvet. What what made you choose this movie? I, I just I wanted to drive down our our listenership and make sure nobody <laughs> listened to this episode. <laughs> Why didn't you choose Lost Highway? Uh, that's true. Yeah, or Inland Empire, even better. Um, no, I think this movie is really interesting, and I think it's really good. I I had a good time talking about Mulholland Drive, the last David Lynch movie we did. I do not think this movie is as good as Mulholland Drive, but I think it is also emblematic of David Lynch's work, and it was really his breakout into the mainstream kind of movie, so I feel like it's important um, in that sense as well. Uh, and there's a lot of meat on the bone here. There's a much more than you would anticipate based on the thumbnail synopsis of what this movie is. And I think that it's important to talk about movies both in the sense of what they mean and like on, in an interpretation kind of way, but also to take a more like Susan Sontag approach to film and talk about how they feel. And I think that David Lynch is very concerned with how this movie is felt and much less concerned with how well we understand it. And Seems like his trademark. <clears throat> right, but, even, but Mulholland Drive I think is a more coherent movie uh -huh. in a lot of ways. I think that you can really say a lot of definite things about what happened in Mulholland Drive and what points Lynch is making in Mulholland Drive, like a, like a thematically coherent movie. Whereas Blue Velvet I think is emotionally and tonally coherent and much more concerned with that in a way that Mulholland Drive not so much de-emphasizes, but isn't as focused on. And I think that that is in a way more emblematic of uh, Lynch's work. Um, so when did, when's the first time you saw Blue Velvet? Crossman. Uh, I don't know, like 15 years ago. Okay, yeah, yeah, that sounds about right. I saw it in college. 
as for a, it's a film class movie. Yeah. And I did not understand it at all. <laughs> no, no idea what was I'm, going on. I'm surprised when you say that, because like, I actually find this movie easier to get as a movie than, say, Mulholland Drive. Like, the events of this movie are laid out much more straightforward. Right, so yeah. I, think, I, I agree. And I think that when I say this movie is more coherent than Mulholland Drive, what I mean is I find it easier to suss out this, what Lynch is saying thematically, like what his ideas are. I think it's easier to extract that from Mulholland Drive than, than Blue Velvet. I think Blue Velvet is it's easier to figure out what is actually going on on the screen, but mm -hmm. harder to figure out how it adds up to something. Does that distinction make sense? I guess, yeah. Okay. <laughs> okay. I mean, and that's just my experience, and I think that... But I also disagreed with you about how Mulholland Drive is, like, easy to interpret. That's true, yeah. Not, not, not easy to interpret, but I think open to a more concrete interpretation, whereas I think that this movie is not. I think that this movie is open to a lot of readings, thematically and tonally and emotionally, that are valid and relevant and worth talking about. Yeah, I'd say Blue Velvet had a much more like easy to follow plot but hard to follow like greater message. Yes, which is what I'm yeah, trying to say here. I'm just yeah. trying to summarize In fewer words. Yeah. <laughs> um, so to that point, Charles, what did you feel when you were watching this movie? I think I think David Lynch's movies kind of put me into this weird corner of my brain that nothing right. else does. It's this weird feeling that I can't describe. Yeah, it's it's very hard to describe. It's peculiar, um, but there's just that kind of uneasiness and unsettlingness that you feel throughout. Um, just like even even when everything is going okay, and he's showing like how idyllic this little town is, uh, things still seem kind of off and kind of unsettling, kind of in the, it reminded me of Brazil in a way. I hear that, yeah. Um, there, there's a bit of that kind of like 90s weird commercial feel to it. Yeah. Um, so like, you know, the, one of the first shots is that shot of the sky and the picket fence and the roses. And that seems like a very like basic thing and it seems like a very nice like scene, right? It seems like something that'd be relaxing and peaceful and beautiful. Mm -hmm. But even that very simple scene felt kind of off. There was something weird about it. I'm not exactly sure why. Maybe it's the camera angle facing upward. Yeah, and then it pans down onto the, the flower. Yeah, like you wouldn't normally see it done that way. There was just something like unsettling about it. And it just kind of put me on edge for like the whole movie. Yeah, I think that's what it was going for. So yeah. it, it appears to have worked. Yeah, and I think some, I, I read it described as dreamlike, and I think that's a very fitting description of that kind of David Lynch feeling. Right, and well, and he's concerned with like the, the dream logic of these, I don't know, locations that he's crafting, right? Like what, the, what, what rules apply and don't apply, and how can something like that's simple but strange put you off yeah. in such a complete way? Um, and, and I think you see that uh, throughout this movie. There's a pretty well-known uh, David Foster Wallace article, but also interview about this movie specifically, where he talks about um, towards the end of the film when the yellow man is killed and like the, the Jeffrey character is in Dorothy's apartment and you have the yellow man there bleeding from his head, a bit of his brain sticking out, and he's just standing there, like clearly dead, except for the one time when he flails out and hits the, <laughs> the lamp. And there's no explanation for why that's happening. Right, he's just like standing there, clearly dead. Jeffrey reacts like it's something normal that's happening. 
the co the, the cop that com or Frank when he comes in later reacts the same way, and it's just in this world that this man is dead and standing there, and it's just here's the strange thing that I'm not going to explain or attempt to explain to you, and I think that you see little bits like that um, throughout the film. I don't know. What do you think of Blue Velvet, Crafton? I think it has a lot of like classic lines in it. Yes. <laughs> What's your favorite one? I know what my favorite one is. <laughs> I think it's when Dennis Hopper screams past blue paths blue ribbon. Yep, that's mine too. Tom, yep. Tom <laughs> Heineken. <laughs> Fuck that shit. Yeah. That's that's my favorite moment right. probably in this movie. Quoted that a few times over the last week just because yes. it cracks me up. It's, it's very every, funny. Every single time. And he's like, yeah. I love how surprised Dennis Hopper is that yeah. he said Heineken. Like yeah. it's it's anger and surprise in equal measure and it's just like this outburst about something so trivial. Like <laughs> what your favorite beer is. Yeah. Yeah, and it, that reminds me of my other favorite line when they're when he when um, Jeffrey and Sandy are in the bar the first time and they're talking about beer and yeah. Jeffrey's like, "Oh, Budweiser, King, King of, of Beers." beers. Yeah. <laughs> it's just like he's yeah. fucking. Why do they just sit there talking about beer? <laughs> right. Like, why did they just sit there talking about beer? I don't know. Did they have a Heineken sponsorship? Oh, I doubt no it. No way. No. This is, that'd be impossible. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, so there's like... Yeah. It, it, it like, just seemed like such blatant product placement. Right. Well, and I think it, it may be relevant that Heineken is not an American beer. And Budweiser is. And Pabst Blue Ribbon is. And it's associated with the working class, where Heineken is not. Um, but it could you ever taste Heineken and taste like sewer water? Like. Uh, yeah, I know that you're really down on Heineken. I just feel like all of that class of beer tastes exactly the same and also all taste like sewer water. Right, but, but Heineken uh, is not pitched that way. Like Heineken, when it was originally marketed, it was supposed to be like this fancy beer. And you're a fancy guy if you drink Heineken. Yeah. And Budweiser is not. And Pabst Blue Ribbon definitely is not. So I guess that's what they were going for. Uh, maybe. Like who the hell knows? Maybe it's just a weird thing. Like, and, that, and that's just it. Like, this movie is so resistant to, to saying anything concrete well, about what's going on. I think, <clears throat> so there's a few things. Um, one of the major themes of the movie seems to be, like, 50s, 60s car culture. Because it seems to be sure. set in a, like, dreamy version of, like, the late 50s, early 60s. So you have these, like... Boaty cars. Yeah. I, I didn't. I, I think it's definitely in the eighties because I saw some eighties cars in there. But yeah, they but, classic cars. but they're harkening back to the sixties for sure because yeah. they have these like yeah. giant Chevrolets. It's like a lot of like greaser culture references. I, I my favorite shot in the movie was those two shots of the Charger headlights. Yeah. Oh yeah. I really fucking love that car and I love the feature that the later ones have where the the grill like pops they up for up. the right. But the, I mean, and that's that's a specifically modern vehicle as opposed to the one that Jeffrey's driving around in the whole movie, which is yeah. not. Like, yeah. It's an older car. Um, the casting of Dennis Hopper, I think, <coughs> is important because he's an iconic actor mm -hmm. of the 50s and 60s. Easy Rider. Right? Yeah. yeah. Well, and he's specifically about uh, American. He's a very American actor. Yes. And he's a rebellious actor. Right? Yeah. And, yeah. Yeah. Um, so I think the movie is definitely about that. Yeah. Uh, well, <laughs> like, yeah. thematically, it is that. Yeah, the, well, like, the uh, level zero reading of this movie is, I think, that the suburban or small town gloss that you put over the terrible thing, right? That you're using mm -hmm. this put-upon, you know, mask of a town to hide something very dark and, mm -hmm. and insidious underneath which it. Which is a very common theme of the 80s. Right. Which well, is, like, the sort of the wreckage of the country. Yep. 
uh, in the 80s, and we look back to the good times, which were the 50s and 60s. It, exactly. Which is like the beginning of like suburb culture. Yeah, so it's a, it's a retreat into nostalgia. Yeah. And I think you see that it, uh, Twin Peaks deals with very similar ideas. Like this movie is yeah. a lot like Twin Peaks, especially mm -hmm. the first season. We watched Heather's last year. Yeah. Like a lot of these. Approaches it from a different angle, but. Nightmare on Elm Street. Nightmare on Elm Street. The 80s is like really trying to deal with the way society has been separated into suburb and urban Right, well, and, and kind of the insidious nature of nostalgia. I yeah. think it's concerned with that as well. Um, yeah. But like I said, I think, oh, go ahead, sorry. So building on that, I think part of these like ridiculous lines that seem like product placement are actually also hearkening back to the 60s where they're very reminiscent of like commercials, how products are presented, how like American products are like industrialized and commercialized. So it's like, oh, we're supposed to think about like perhaps Blue Ribbon and Budweiser because these are like brands that everybody knows and we say their names with a smile on our face because that's like how like commercial culture, which was, you know, really that's the revolutionized point. in the yeah. 60s was presented. So I think it's a part that the, those lines and those scenes I think are um, like a comment on that. And then Dennis, Dennis Hopper is a character who's much more of a, you know, he, he is like, you know, he is the rebel without a cause, like, guy, right? right. That, like, and he's meant to be, like, disruptive and, like, an animal and kind of, like, like, he represents the 80s, which is, like, like, or his, like, character's, like, outward reaction is, like, the loudness of the 80s. Right. Well, yeah. and, and, he, and his, like rudeness of it. Yeah. yeah. Well, and his acting style is so drastically different than everybody else in this movie. Yeah. Right. Like he's the only one that kind of talks like a person. And he talks like a crazy person, but it's like a crazy person that you can believe. Whereas the yeah. crazy person that everybody else talks like sounds like a fabrication. Right. It's it's it sounds like someone reading lines, in of in a lot of ways. And whereas Dennis Hopper, in like comes a TV in, play. Right. He yeah. comes in and he and he is speaking crazy talk, but he's speaking crazy talk in a way that sounds like how somebody actually speaks. Mm -hmm. And that is, I think, an important choice. And I think that Lynch was doing that very consciously, that what Hopper represents in this movie is reality, right? He is what is real. And what everybody else, like Jeffrey and Sandy, et cetera, et cetera, are representing in this movie is not real. They're nostalgia. It is, it is false. It is, it, is a, it is the put on. Um, and I think that that shows up in the acting choices. Yeah, and I think, and maybe we can get into it now, but I, th I think that the differences of like the, the different, the two relationships that like Kyle McLaughlin has mm -hmm. in the film, Kyle McLaughlin, who plays our main character, also the mayor of Portlandia. Yes. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, he's done stuff since the 80s? Oh yeah, well yeah. he was the lead in Twin Peaks. Um, I just know him as the the guy from Dune, which I hated. Also, he was in Dune. Um, but yeah, he's, he's worked mayor with Portland, yeah. yeah, he's worked okay. with Lynch a lot because yeah. he was he's the guy in Twin Peaks. He's the lead character. Okay. Um, mayor in Portlandia. He he had he's a, seen a bunch of stuff. Like he was, he's well liked. As he, well, yeah, he's he's such a weirdo and like in, in a very specific way. Yeah. Um, he was also in Desperate Housewives when that show, like in the first season of Desperate Housewives, um, which I'm certain he was cast because of his role in Twin Peaks and and Blue Velvet. Okay. Um, so, yeah, he, he's, he's done a lot of work. Yeah, yeah so he has, like, he has two relationships in this movie. One with Isabel Rossellini, who's mm -hmm. like a prisoner of Dennis Hopper, and the other with 
the great Laura Dern, a very young Laura Dern in yeah. this movie. She had to be 16. As a baby. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah seriously. She looks so different. Because she's a lot younger yeah. than if it was made in 1986. Yeah. Um, and I think the contrast between those relationships is important. on a surface level, like very thematically important. Yeah. Um, Laura Dern being the like idyllic, like kind of best gal uh, relationship yep. where it's like a high school romance. Mm -hmm. And then mm -hmm. Isabella Rossellini, who's like, life is incredibly f fucked up and messed up. <laughs> yes. Um, and being controlled by Dennis Hopper. And I think that duality is is important. Well, and it's yeah. a thing It's a thing you see in, in Lynch movies all the time where that duality is made very explicit through hair, right? That you have Laura Dern as the blonde, blonde yeah. and you have Rossellini as the brunette. Yeah, and which Rosalini he explored in... Mulholland Drive. In Mah yes, yeah. it's in Mulholland Drive, it's yeah. in Twin Peaks, it's over and over and over again. He's obsessed with the contrast between blonde and brunette. Um, and you even see Isabel Rossellini is wearing a wig, right? That the, the brunette bit is, again, another put on that mm -hmm. she has to take off. Um, and then put it back on and never takes off again. Um, yeah. <laughs> which is, again, weird. Um, so yeah, I think that that is certainly a part of this movie as well. Also, I just checked, Laura Dern was born in 1967. Um, she recorded 19 she, then right, probably well, 18 18 when the, yeah so yeah. she was very young yeah <laughs> that is very youthful um, and Isabel Rosalini would have been a good what 10 years old than her at least I bet uh, so yes the age gap I think is is important there too because you associate blonde hair with youth you associate yeah. it with innocence you associate it with purity and that's exactly what the Dorothy Valens character was not uh, in this film yeah, so yeah, Isabel Rossellini, 1952, so that's a 15-year age gap yeah, between the two of them. Yeah. Um, um, so I think that you're correct. I think that that is um, th this contrast between the bright suburban service world and the underworld is central to this movie. You see it in the opening shot when the, the camera pans down into the yard and you see what's literally just beneath the surface and it's a bunch of like creepy bugs that are Yeah, when, when, when that scene happened, I was at first a little disgusted, obviously, because it's a bunch of yeah, you're supposed to be. Yeah. And then I like sarcastically like summarized the movie uh, right. jokingly. They're and like, then it turned out to be right. I was like, you know, maybe this represents the, the <laughs> CD underpinnings yes. of suburban yeah. life. Right. That is precisely well, like, what's going on. They're flesh eating beetles too, which is important. Where it's like yeah. they like eat away at the dying. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And then you have them show up again at the very end where the robin that represents love is eating, eating the beetle. The beetle. <laughs> and it's like, well, okay. Yeah. And that's also just a little unsettling, right? Because um, it's, like a very it's fake clearly an robin. animatronic. Yeah. Yes, like, also, yeah, not a real robin. Robin. Um, and like, pointedly so. Uh, so the duality of the characters also is interesting because McLaughlin is, uh, he has this kind of, like high school kind of dating and love relationship with Laura Dern. Yes. And he has this like very lust driven relationship with Isabella Rossellini. Yes. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, David Lynch is a, a creepo kind of perv, <laughs> I guess, right? Probably. But at least he's like admitting, I guess, like where his interests lie, right? Or like what his experience was like in his relationship. Oh, you, you just reminded like, me. I, um, yeah. When Laura Dern asks him if he's a detective or a pervert, and he says, that's for me to know and you to find out. <laughs> yeah. I like fucking cracked up. I, <laughs> yeah. That was really it's funny. Like, Damn. Yeah. <laughs> well, like, he thinks he's smooth, but that's actually, that's actually a really Wait, creepy to think. He, he is right a there. perv, though, right? Because yeah. uh, she's in high school, and he's clearly in college. Right. Yeah. It, well, yeah. They made it sound like he's 
probably in his like freshman or sophomore year of college. Yeah. Um, so, but it's still like he's cruising back to the high school to like. Right, and they established pick up, pick that. Pick up cheerleaders. Yeah, they established that she's a junior, which makes her like sixteen. Yeah. Um. So, yeah, you know. Yeah. So he's nineteen uh, or twenty. Like that's a, at yeah. that age, that is a significant enough gap. Yeah. 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 Um. And yeah, as opposed to the Rosalina character, where the, the first thing that happens when, he meets her is that she blows him at knife point. <laughs> it's like, oh, yeah. okay, which is pretty close to a rape scene, right? That again, I think raises all the power dynamic, the sexual power dynamics in this movie that are, again, very central to I, the film. I noticed that she seemed to be replicating what Frank was doing yes. to her. Yes. Like, she said all the same things. She said, like, don't look at me. And mm -hmm. Yeah, she's like just that. passing on her trauma to... Yeah. Right. I Which, guess she wanted to be the to one in power for Take once. revenge on Kyle McLaughlin. Like, Kyle McLaughlin had, like, wronged <coughs> her because he was, like... Stealing her stuff he and breaking into her house and yeah, spying he, on her. Yeah, he's a <laughs> doing all, that, all yeah. that stuff. Yeah, but I think that gets to the other major theme in this movie, which is the Oedipal themes. I think this is a very Freudian film. Um, that it, it, Zizek makes this point, um, and he also cites this movie as one of his favorites ever. <laughs> Take that for what you will. Yeah. Um, Known fascist sympathizer, Zizek. He has, yeah. he has sympathized with basically everybody at some point <laughs> along the line. Including like, fascists. Including fascists, yeah. including communists, including George Bush. Yeah. Um, so yeah, he's kind of been all over the map. Um, but he has, in his uh, Pervert's Guide to Cinema video, I, or movie, he has a bit where he really breaks down that first scene where Kyle McLaughlin is in the closet watching Rosabella, or um, Isabella, Rosalini, and Frank have something that resembles sex <laughs> with each other. Um, and the point that he raises, and I think he's right about this, is that the, the, the first thing that happens in the movie is that the Jeffrey character, his father is incapacitated, right? He has a heart attack, he can no longer speak. Jeffrey has no father figure in his life. He sees these two who are approximately his parents' age, maybe a little younger, engaged in something that looks like sex to him. He is watching it as though it is his only, his only and first exposure to sexual activity of any kind, secretly. And you see a very performative sexual activity from the Frank character who seems very concerned with verifying his own virility while at the same time debasing himself in front of the character who stands in for the Kyle McLaughlin's mother. You have the Frank character engaging in extravagant, ostentatious sexual maneuvers that really don't make any sense and don't reflect any actual se sexual activity, but which Jeffrey ends up kind of replicating right later on in the movie. So I think that there's a lot on, a lot that this movie has to say about the Oedipus complex, and I think that a lot of it is introduced in that particular scene, and they think there's a reason that's the most famous scene in the movie. Um, so I don't know if anybody else had any Freudian thoughts on this movie, but I, I think they're all over the place. I, mean, I think it's hard to avoid. Like the whole yeah. plot is spurred by like his father being cut down. Yes. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Silenced, killed. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and I, I think that yeah, it's 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 very present here. Um, and but you also see like this weird power dynamic that that comes into play with these BDSM relationships, where it's about it, where even if you're the one that's dominating, right, which Frank was here, that's still exposing some of yourself, right, because he still is exposing what his desires are to this person that he has power over, 
and in turn exposing those desires to the people that are observing him, and that is an act of, of vulnerability. And that is present in this film, right, where you see him debasing himself in order to exert his power. And it's complicated. It's complicated. I think it's interesting, too, that they, like, they associate it with criminality, but it's like... Sure. Because it's like Dennis Hopper is the the gang leader, but he's also this like creepy perv that like those two things are like hard to disentangle. Dis yeah, disentangle. And when you see Kyle McLaughlin like Kyle McLaughlin is like doing this peeping Tom act, you know, that's the point in which like he begins his relationship with Isabel uh, Rossellini's character too. And so there's like this like criminality connection with sexuality in this movie. Right, well, which, and, and a deviance connection to it. Yeah, yeah. Right? Yeah. I mean, beyond simply doing things that are unlawful, you're doing things that are unacceptable. Yeah. Right, and I think that that's an important distinction here. Right, because if you look at his, again, you compare that relationship to the one with the Laura Dern character, she's resistant to even being kissed. Right, like that, that is too much for her. She has to turn that down. Whereas she is already with someone. Mike. He's trying to kiss her. Yep, so. fucking Mike. <laughs> yeah. he's, he's being kind of a dick there. He, he was. Jeffrey, not Mike. <laughs> well, Mike too. <laughs> They're both being dicks. Well, not <laughs> yeah. at that moment. That's true. Um, but you compare that in a, the very obvious contrast with the Isabella Rossellini character who's demanding that, that she be hit in bed and on and on and on. Right? Um, so I think that that is... Yes, it's about criminality, but it's also about deviance. It's also about not conforming to the rules, even if you're not necessarily doing something unlawful. Uh, what do you, yeah. you see here? Um, with David Lynch, it's really hard to know what has meaning and what doesn't. Because yes. when you introduce <laughs> symbols into the film, then it's possible that like everything is a symbol. Um, so one thing that comes to mind is like at one point we see the football team practicing but they're like they're practicing on a tennis court <laughs> and, oh, I noticed that yes and uh, that struck me as weird and but I was like I don't know what to do with that is it just like a visual joke that David Lynch is <laughs> making did they did, did they only have access to a tennis court a tennis court and they just shot it there for whatever reason definitely not. like Right, like, like they, they could have shot that on just an open field, and it would have made more sense. It's gotta knows. be next to the high school. I guess. Who knows? Yeah, but that's so. That's what's a little frustrating about David Lynch films, because it's like, does, like, does everything have meaning? Does not? And if we, right, and, is, and then David Lynch the, looks at the camera and says, "I'm a savant." Right. <laughs> well, I, I think that that like does nothing have meaning then? Like, I don't know. <laughs> but that's not even his point, though, right? Like I don't, I don't think he is saying that any specific thing has meaning or doesn't have meaning. He's saying it doesn't matter what David Lynch says, though, because right. like we as an audience are looking for symbols. And that's and so, what matters. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, because you can watch. I mean, the most important piece of film with David Lynch in it is his interview when he and he has like four cartoon dolls yes. next to him. I remember this. And he, it's, it's this, this um, it was, it's, been it's, a, it's an on. intro that yeah. he shot. So there's a premiere of a movie 
and he couldn't be there, so he shot like a short video and like introduces the movie, and then I think it's for Mulholland Drive. Probably. Um, or just one of his movies. Yeah. It might even be for this movie. Um, but he's just on a couch, he's sitting next to four dolls. He starts the movie by introducing each doll and then <laughs> says like, you know, thanks for coming tonight. I hope you enjoy the movie. And that's like the end of the. Uh, <laughs> that's the end of the promo. And it's like that's the perfect like Lynchian moment because it's like, what like what just happened like what? But then the rest of it was normal, right? Right. Like and, and so and it's like. And I think that's what is, is so Lynchian, right? It's the these the normalcy of things. The norm, yeah. yeah, the normalcy of, the normal, normal reactions to very strange things. Right, and I think this is the other way that this movie and his work in general is Freudian, and I think it's a concept that we have raised before because Freud would talk about the uncanny, right? And uh, have you read this essay that Freud wrote of Freud's? Yeah, yeah. I've read the uncanny. Yeah. Okay, so Freud's. Correct me if I'm wrong, because I, I might be misquoting him. But the general concept is that the things appear strange not because they are unfamiliar. They appear strange because they are familiar, but a little different, right? And mm -hmm. that moment is is what is uncanny. So it's when we identify something that we know, mm -hmm. something that we recognize, and something that is otherwise strange, when it becomes not just weird, not just not just strange, but uncanny and unsettling. And that and that's the feeling that is so frequently evoked in. In Lynch's films, so when you see stuff like the like, like what what you were talking about, Charles, at the beginning of this episode, where the camera pans down and you see this rose, red rose, dead center in the middle of the camera, with like three primary colors that are all very exaggerated and like a weirdly, like overtly ostentatious, nice little soundtrack to it. All of that stuff is familiar, but because it's so exaggerated and so mm -hmm. peculiar looking. It, be, it becomes unsettling despite it being something that it really shouldn't be when you just describe yeah. what's being depicted. And I think that that is a, a feeling that Lynch is trying to draw out over and over and over again. Yeah. Um, well, one, one thing that I've been thinking about while watching this movie is like what service David Lynch's weirdness does for the movie. Because mm -hmm. a lot of the <clears throat> quirky aspects of it are just kind of inserted without like contributing to the overall plot or theme of the movie necessarily. Um, but one thing I've come to notice thinking about it right now is that when everything is slightly off or when there's weird things on the screen, it kind of puts your guard up so you start to pay more attention to how things are. Because when things are familiar, you can, you can kind of gloss over the things that are familiar because you already know it, you already are familiar with it, right? So you just ignore it in a way. But here, you're you're kind of forced to pay attention to everything and that makes you notice more things because there's so much strangeness going on. Yeah, I think that's a really good point, actually. Yeah, that's, that, that's good to read. And, and especially because these movies and the, each shot is, is so full of like little details, right, that it would be easy to just glide right by. So you start paying attention to like what beers people are ordering yeah. and shit like that. Right? Yeah, so things I, I, I'm thinking about uh, when I mean things that are weird but also don't contribute to the theme mm -hmm. or plot of the movie are like when he's walking down the dark street of the suburb and there's just like this fat dude walking a tiny dog. <laughs> he's just there. Yeah. And like, he, yeah, he's just there. Or like when they leave the place where they're holding the husband and child hostage, they literally just vanish out of thin air yeah. from that place. And then like that never happens again in the rest of the movie. It's not addressed or anything like that. 
Um, and as far as I'm aware, it doesn't contribute to a theme uh, of the movie. So that just kind of happens. Yeah, I mean, he, he's such a, a mood and tone-oriented director that I think that's what those scene, kind of scenes are doing, right? Like, because it creates a sense of watching this film. Um, let's talk about Laura Dern's dream. Right, so it's like this dream within a dream sequence. Uh, so you'll, you'll recall it's like after uh, Jeffrey has his first encounter with um, Isabel Rossellini and Frank, and he's in his car with Laura Dern outside of a church. And Laura Dern describes this dream that she had where all of these robins show up out of nowhere, and all of the robins represent all of the love in the world, and that once these robins reach us, then everything will be okay, and there's love everywhere, and that is the perfect thing and the best thing that she can imagine, and then a Robin shows up at the end <laughs> of the movie. Um, what did we think about that scene? Did we think anything about that scene? Did it, did it stand out in any way? Because it well, I figured me. it meant that robins were probably going to show up at the end of the you movie. Want, okay, you did you did pick that one out. So that's good. I'm like, oh, there's a robin. Yeah, I guess we're, we're mystery solved. Everything's fine now. Yeah, but um, I mean, it points to her, I guess, idealism and naivete. Yes, but that's I, I guess. My reaction to it wasn't so much focused on her character, because her character had already, like, we knew what the Lordern character is yeah. about here, right? But I'm more interested in how Lynch presents that kind of information, right? So the speech that Laura Dern is giving is another speech that becomes so extravagant in its detail and in its idealism that it becomes this ironic thing. Right, where it's mm -hmm. impossible to take it seriously, right? Like it's impossible to listen yeah. to Laura Dern deliver that and think, yes, this is a this is a serious person. This is a sincere expression that we or like. This is a movie sincerely expressing these ideas, right? Like the movie is not saying that what Laura Dern is doing here has any kind of weight or any kind of value to it. Well, and no, go ahead, please. No, I mean because it ends that way, <laughs> I think it it's saying that like. Ending, because like her 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 explanations like really corny, right? It's yeah, like, all these birds like represent love. A thousand and birds like, representing love came out. Right. right, and then and then the movie ends with the robin. The robin, and I think it's it could be interpreted as like a meta commentary on like ha movie happy endings, where it's like it's it's ridiculous and absurd to like always end. Movies on an up note, and is yeah, yeah, and it is, and that's yeah. that's what it could be saying, uh, especially when because the events of the movie like get so dark, mm -hmm. and then it's yeah. like, and then suddenly there's a happy ending in this movie, right? Out of nowhere, yeah, yeah out of yeah. nowhere, and, and it, I think Lynch is like <clears throat> trying to highlight that like as much as possible that like chasm between the events and the ending, right? Well, because yeah. he he makes a happy ending that feels unsatisfying. Right, like you don't. Like you, the, the dad gets better. Right, all the "quote unquote" bad characters disappear. Right, are are dead now. Yeah, the, Rosalini has her has her, her son back. again. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. and then Laura Dern is with Kamala. Yeah, off, like. exactly. And and I think you're right. And I think he's calling attention yeah. to that with the Robin, because not only is the Robin very clearly fake, right, in a way that it didn't need to be. Like he could have he could have made that animatronic look better if he wanted to. He could have had it move and not like such. 
you know, jerky, robot-like ways, right? But it's also eating the beetle, right? And, and that he's calling to mind in that last shot, the beetles are still out there, right? These, this thing that, at the, that we established at the beginning of the movie as, as being the insidious thing underneath the surface of this town still exists. And you can have the nice robin come along and pluck away one beetle, but at the beginning of the movie, we saw like a fucking million beetles, right? There's a lot more of them out there. There's a lot more Franks out there, right? There's a lot more drugs and curl cops out there. And that if you can find one robin taking out one beetle, that doesn't fucking matter. <laughs> it's irrelevant. And I think that that's what that called to mind for me, is that just this one decent thing that already feels false is false. That's why it feels that way. It's because it doesn't matter. Yeah, and it implies to that the end, like the end is possibly a dream, right? Right. Like, or Lord, the whole thing. Lord Dern yeah. said that like it was her dream earlier, and now we're seeing the Robin. So therefore, the sick, you know, we can connect those two things. And it is also a dream. Consider it a dream. Yeah. Um, but even like even this is like uh, not as good as her dream. Even this dream world. This potential dream world, because what was supposed to happen is there would be a thousand robins, right? There were supposed to be all these robins that come and save everything, and even in this potentially or, or clearly false version of that, there's one, there's one robin, and I got one beetle, and you know, big deal, <laughs> right? Who cares? Yeah. Um, and so I think that that's true, but I think that it that scene is also important in that because it plays so ironically you start to wonder about how, how Lynch is approaching this irony, right? Like, is it just like that level one irony where it's about, I'm gonna say one thing, but I mean the other thing, right? Is that all that's going on there? Or is, are we supposed to be saying, look at, he says the other thing, but it's so over the top that we're supposed to be aware of Lynch knowing that it's over the top, <laughs> yeah. right? This is, yeah, this, this is what frustrates me about <clears throat> Lynch, because yeah. it's like, I, I like the things that you're doing, but then when you start doing this, like triple, second, like double, yep. triple, quadruple guessing, like mm -hmm. what things are, that's what I find like very frustrating about his his films. Right, and, and it it almost feels like you need to, yeah. like train yourself to watch them by just watching a lot of them or watching them multiple times. Yeah, and he's encouraging us to not look for those answers. Right, like I, I think that there's so much absurdity in his work and in his life that yeah. he's telling us that if you're looking for a one-to-one, -one, you know, answer to everything that's happening here, you're going to be frustrated and unsatisfied. Right, that this is complicated and messy, and what you should really be in examining and interrogating is your reaction and your feeling and in, in, in your emotional response to the stuff that's happening here and why you're feeling that way. Right, like what about that? What is this calling to mind for you? And what is, why is this making you feel the way it is making you feel? Yeah, and, and I think he does a good job of like under underlining like his critique of film, which is that like everything is like very vapid and, and fake. Right. Which, it, yeah, easy. Yeah. Yeah, easy which critique like, to make. Yeah, but not a lot of people are making that. Point. So mm -hmm. it's important that like somebody says yes. it. Yes, <laughs> you're absolutely. Right. And at least and it, you know, he's definitely been like punished by that. Like you know, he's not making a film every six months like Woody Allen. You know, he's right. He's making a movie every twelve years, maybe on right. average. Well, I, he yeah. did just release uh, the third season of. 
Twin Peaks. Um, to much like consternation, that was like a very challenging development. Right, for and, the but then everybody season. loved it. Yeah, and it was great. Right, because <laughs> like, so oh, he's the other like he is a great filmmaker. Right, uh, but yeah, even <clears throat> even the scenes in which like you know everything feels unnatural, mm -hmm. I think that's an important like point to make because like you know what we see on screen is fake, right? And mm -hmm. David Lynch Always. like highlights that. And he does it on purpose. Some films, it's very easy to tell that things are fake, right? And we get taken out of the film because of that. Yeah. And then other films are like do a good job of like hiding hiding their fakeness. Um, but David Lynch is like doing this on purpose, and that's like an interesting statement to make. Yeah. So it kind of makes yeah. both maneuvers, right? Yeah. Where like our awareness of his awareness of the fakeness, it, it colors our viewing. Yeah. Right. And changes how we react to it. Um, I don't know if. Susan Sontag have, has ever written about Lynch. She probably has. Yeah. Um, but watching movies like this does remind me of On Interpretation. Um, I don't know if either of you have read that essay. On Which one? Sorry. On Interpretation. I'm uh, probably in grad school. Okay. I, I read a lot in grad school. <laughs> yeah, right. It's not long. All no. like grad school theory just kind of blends together <laughs> right. eventually, <laughs> where it's like, <laughs> yeah. Oh, everything's a facsimile. Okay, cool. Yeah. Right. 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 Oh, on interpretation <laughs> is an interesting one. It's Susan Sontag. It's not that long, so you can't just sit down and read it, and it is pretty readable. Um, and her thesis, in a nutshell, is that we spend too much time trying to figure movies out. We spend too much time on trying to interpret the film and not enough time experiencing the film and experiencing our our reaction to it and what it is to just sit and watch it because we're so concerned with what does this mean? And Lynch seems to be making movies in reaction to that kind of instinct, right? That kind of what does it mean instinct? Well, whatever, it, whatever you want, nothing everything, right? Like, those are his answers to that question. And mm -hmm. to me, that feels like a, a Susan Sontag kind of maneuver. Um, so I, I should have checked before this episode whether she'd written about Lynch, but I would imagine she has, and I would imagine that she uh, liked what he did. You know, your yeah. your statement about how Lynch kind of calls attention to the fakeness of cinema yeah. kind of reminds me of uh, the classic Magritte painting, The Treachery of Images. Sure. Are you guys aware yeah. of this? Yeah. yeah. Uh, so the the painting is the image of a pipe, but it also is captioned, this is not a pipe in French. Yep. Um, and it calls the attention to the fact that it's a painting of a pipe and yep. not actually literally a pipe, right? And so, like, the importance of calling attention to the fakeness of the movie can remind you that you know these are like you know fictional stories these are crafted um, and that you know you shouldn't expect real life to go the same way and things like that right well I mean it also calls to mind in a sense the realness of what is being mimicked right mm -hmm. so like we we note the differences between what is going on in blue velvet and what we experience in real life and how those things are different yeah. but also then how they're not but similar. I think that's also one of the things that's like so alluring about film is like when it works really well and it's real, it's magic. that's when it's great. That's why Steven Spielberg is such a great filmmaker is because yeah. like he's able to do fantastic things and like you know you get really magical things mm -hmm. out of them. Yeah. Yeah. You imagine what life could be. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And and when film is approached poorly, that's all you think about, right, is that you forget that, that it's not what's going on there. And I think that Lynch and Sontag and you know, DFW and Zizek are concerned with those yeah. things. I'd push back a little bit. I think, I think it is important to think about like what 
the ideology of a movie is, and I, I think that's really important. You're, I no, yeah. I agree. I'm not, I don't put forward Sontag's ideas because I agree with all of them. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yes, uh, and we, I think we spoke about this even last week that, you know, a lot of action movies are like just commercials for like joining the military. <laughs> yes, that's one of like many examples of like the ide ideology of a movie being problematic and. I think it's really important to engage with like, what is it that the a film is trying to tell us? No, I I, I agree, yeah. um, and I that I think is the most common and correct critique of of Bond interpretation. Yeah. Um, and she she's right that everybody should relax, but that's also yeah. it does feel like a very kind of like film crit like snootiness too, yes. where it's like, oh well, me and all my liberal friends discuss what movies mean. It's like. Yeah, that, that, yeah, that's like, not what you're here for. Yeah, right. well, and, so, and the much bigger problem is obviously, people but, but that's her, the audience that she's engaging with, so she's okay to right, like write that exactly. So, but if you're talking to a popular audience, you shouldn't be telling them to think about their movies less. Yeah, <laughs> that's a yeah. bad message. That, for that the, is a bad for message. the general audience. Yeah, yeah, because we definitely don't think about our movies nearly enough. Yeah, and or even at all consider why you're going to that movie. Too. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Exactly. So, yeah, I think that Sontag was speaking to an audience that is not just whoever's going to go see the Marvel movie this week, right? Like that's that was not her point. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I think that her point is still relevant for the audience that is going to go see the David Lynch movie this week. Um, and I think that we would do one of, or the you know Paul Thomas Anderson movie or whatever. I watched an episode of um, Have you seen Ugly Delicious? No. What is that? It's a show on Netflix, and they. Each week they have like a theme of just like a certain food, and then they like okay. they go to a few restaurants where they like specialize in that food, cool. and then like eat it. Um, <laughs> what they did, what they did in the episode that I watched, which I really liked, so it's an episode on tacos and like mm -hmm. how Mexican culture brought tacos to the U.S. And then they went to like a few different taco places around Los Angeles, and it's a few important um, food critics. Um, one of which is uh, Jonathan Gold, who's like the food critic in Los Angeles. He's he's sure. the guy. Um, and one of the restaurants that they go to is is a Taco Bell. <laughs> and, <laughs> and so you see like Jonathan Gold, who's like the <laughs> uh, food oh, critic okay. of the West Coast, essentially. And he like they're they're all like eating Taco Bell, and and talking about like. How terrible it is! Of course it is. It also uh, costs which, course fifty nine cents. Yeah, we know yes. that, and it's funny to see like really high end food critics. Um, yes. But one of them makes a really good important point. So they get the like the Dorito shells tacos. Jesus, okay. Yes. And um, <laughs> the, Doritos the Doritos tacos logos or whatever. It is. <laughs> um, and one of the guys is like, "I just wish I was eating Doritos." And <laughs> <laughs> you kind of are, and, well, but you're also eating. All but you're not. <laughs> yeah, and. Uh, and I think bringing it back to like film, I think we have that experience a lot where it's like, oh, you know, we're seeing this film and really we just want to see like the film that it makes us think of. And which is I, like, I think this is a very like common experience. Which is Hitchcock, <laughs> right? Like that's yeah. the, well, that's what you think of when you watch this. You think yeah. I could be watching a Hitchcock movie. You're like you could you could be watching Vertigo or something like that, which is or Psycho or whatever. Yeah. And I think that that's what he's drawing on most clearly. Is, is Hitchcock experience? Yeah. Um, that said, I don't. I, I don't want to watch Hitchcock every time, right? Like I I want to I want to see the the weird stuff. I want to see people that can that can take the form and try something novel with it. Because like imagine watching this movie in 1986. 
right? Like imagine going to the theater and saying like, oh, look at it, it's Isabel Rosalini. I like her. <laughs> right, like somebody did well, that. You're in for quite that a surprise was, if that's why you're going in there. That was somebody's experience with Blue Velvet. Yeah. They said, let's go see something at the theater this weekend. And I want, I want movies oh like God. that to exist. Right, I want that to be a thing. Well, unfortunately, you don't, because David Lynch doesn't make movies. He so. makes TV now. Yeah. <laughs> so, fine. Yeah, yeah and it, it, you know, nobody goes to movies ignorantly anymore. Like, you know, all the plot yeah, beats you know before, created, you, yeah. before you sit down. Um, any, any, like, closing thoughts on this film? I, I like it. I think it's very... I actually, we haven't gotten into this, but I think this is a very funny film. Sure, yeah. Um, <laughs> Kyle McLaughlin cracks me up all the time. Yes. And I, th I think there's a reason he's in Portlandia. He's very funny in Portlandia. He's funny in Twin Peaks. Yeah. Right? Like his coffee black is midnight bullshit. Like or the pie like, speech. Yeah. Like a very famous like pie speech. He has, he has several. Or the thing where they, yeah. they're like trying to figure out who the murderer is and they do it by throwing rocks at, at milk bottles and reading names off of a list at the same time. And like when the milk bottle breaks at the same time as you're reading a name, that's your guy. It's like fucking nonsense that doesn't mean anything. And like Kyle McLaughlin just like plays it straight like throughout and it works. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's like that kind of stuff. So I, I think this is a, like a very washable Lynch film compared to most. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Well, I mean, Lost Highway being a great example of that. He got less watchable from here, but prior to this, like Elephant Man is a much easier movie to understand than this, right? Yeah. 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 And it's not that close. <laughs> like, that's, that's a pretty normal, relatively speaking, normal movie. Um, yeah, I like this movie a lot too. I think it's not as good as Mulholland Drive. Um, I feel more when I watch Mulholland Drive, I guess is what I should say. Uh, but I still think this is an important movie and a good movie, and people should watch it. Do you want to watch more Lynch, Charles? You've seen I'm not sure. three of his films? Two, I think. Well, You've Dune. seen Dune, right? Dune. Oh, yeah. And the two we did. I forget that that's a David Lynch movie. <coughs> and it stars Calvin Gotham. <clears throat> yeah, that's yeah that I remember, but... Yeah. Uh, yeah um, I'm reluctant to say yes. See, like, my reaction <laughs> to this movie was strange. It's not this... Like, it's kind of like what I described earlier about this weird corner of my brain that I never go to, right? Well, I don't know point. if I want to... I don't know if I want to go there that often. <laughs> well... Um, and it's like watching this movie, it, I don't get the reaction to it, to like a traditional movie that I like, right? Like I get, there's different reactions that I get when I like a movie. There's like the, like the adrenaline reaction to a good action movie, um, or like a good visuals mm -hmm. reaction, or like, you know, reacting to some interesting dialogue or a good character, or, you know, getting attached that way. And I felt none of those really here, uh, outside of a few moments here and there. And yet, I found myself drawn to it, and I couldn't look away. It's like it's like a car crash, you know. I just I just felt so compelled by it for some reason. Um, so I'm kind of in that weird like superposition between liking and feeling disgusted by the movie. Yeah, I'd recommend Twin Peaks, or at least the first season of Twin Peaks. See what first you think season of Twin Peaks, awesome. Yeah, it's really really good. And then as soon as it gets too weird, you can just stop watching, and you'll you're not gonna miss anything. Well, that's <laughs> not true because the season three is actually amazing. I've heard that, but you don't yeah. even have to watch the filler second season or the movie um, or the movie sequel to get there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah maybe. Um, but so yeah, I recommend Twin Peaks. I think that it, especially season one is great, and it's on Netflix, so everybody can watch it. Yep. Um, anyway. We'll be back in a moment with things we've seen. Thank you for listening. All right, and we're back with things we've seen. Uh, Charles, you want to kick us off this week? So I saw Tag, 
I was pleasantly surprised by this one. I, I thought it was quite enjoyable. It was pretty funny. So all in all, it was a good time. I don't know why these days I have such low expectations for comedy films, because uh, they always seem to defy my expectations when I do go see them. Um, but yeah, it was a fun time. Um, the characters have a really good chemistry going on, which is important when you know it's a movie about a friend group um, that like you know stays together after all this time because they play this game. Um, this is the one where like it's a bunch of dudes in their late 30s and 40s that play tag, right? Yeah. Okay, and it's like so, this, like one month a year they play tag. It's loosely based on a true story too. Right. Yeah. 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 So the cool part is at the end they show clips from the actual people that this was based off of playing tag, and it was really wholesome and cute. Did they um, look like John Hamm? No. Okay. <laughs> or <laughs> Jeremy not. Renner, right? Jeremy Renner. None of them, but yeah. Um, but yeah, um, I don't know if. It had that much like to say beyond just making the jokes and showing the events and stuff. Like it, it delved a little bit into like you know their friendship and their relationship with each other and how like Jeremy Renner being so good at tag just kept him away from the other people. Um, but otherwise, like there were some really good jokes. Um, the premise, like I wasn't sold by it at first, but like you know stepping into the movie, it all made sense and like it was a good way to frame the movie. Um, well, it seems very goofy. Yeah, yeah, and that's like okay, I mean, that's like, perfect for this kind of movie. They should like lean into that, right? Right, it's yeah. perfect for this kind of movie. Um, the action scenes were weirdly good. There's action scenes in this movie. Whenever Jeremy Renner like dodges a tag, uh, they go into like a slow mo <laughs> scene. Okay. Yeah. yeah, and yeah. it was pretty slick. Um, yeah, I, I really like the cast. Because um, it's it's Renner, Ham, and who else is in it? Uh, Jake Johnson, Ed Helms, oh. Oh, okay. uh, Hannibal Burris, uh, did not Is know that. Isla Fisher, okay. Isla, Isla, yeah, Isla, I think. Isla, yeah. oh really, Isla Fisher, okay. Um, Rashida Jones has a guest appearance, but her character doesn't really do a whole lot. Okay, um, but she's there <laughs> to remind me of good past comedies, I guess. That's true. Um, but yeah, I, I've grown to really like Jake Johnson because uh, I like the new girl, like the new funny. girl show. Um, yeah, he's really funny. Yeah, most of these characters are just playing themselves, but like it's their version of themselves that I like to watch, so it's perfect. Yeah, well, and John, I, I think there was a time when John Ham, Ham didn't get as enough credit for being a comedian, and I think that's kind of shifted. Like he's done yeah. enough funny roles now where, where people know he's funny. He was good but in Baby Driver too. Yeah, he was good yeah. in Baby Driver. Um, he was really good in Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt. At the end of the first season, oh my god, dude is hilarious. I uh, forgot he was in that show. People yes. liked his arc in Thirty Rock a lot too. Yeah, where he plays the dumb, good-looking guy. Yeah, and he loses <laughs> yeah. both hands because he reaches into helicopter blades. Hey, he, twice. he did have a cameo on Parks and Rec toward the end as well. It, it was like in the last season, but oh, he gets hired yeah. as like the really dumb but good-looking guy. So the same character as in I guess, Rock. yeah. <laughs> and then he like just gets fired immediately, and he's like, "Oh, thank you for the opportunity." <laughs> yeah, or something yeah. Oh, like that's that. just. I think that's the other reason he's so funny is that he plays against his attractiveness yeah. so much. Um, so, yeah, I like John Hamm a lot. And then, you know, Mad Men. I would yeah. say that he had maybe a little less to do in this one. They didn't, like, play up his character uh, as much as some of the other ones, but he's there. Okay. And he's still pretty funny. <laughs> he's, he's um, but, yeah, uh, all in all, an entertaining time, <clears throat> and it was much better than the trailers looked. Um, I didn't think it was as good as Game Night. I thought Game Night was better, a little more tight, a little more interesting cinematically. Um, but it's still, you know, this one's still worth seeing. It had some really A-plus jokes in it. Uh, it was a good time. Uh, Hannibal Burris, I think, had 
the best jokes. That would have been my guess. Yeah. yeah. He gets to play that kind of dry humor, which is just like fantastic. Yes. Yeah. So funny. Yes. Yeah. That is so funny. Broad City, he just knocks it out like every single time. Yeah. He <laughs> had, but he's a dentist. I don't want to, I'm not going to spoil it, but he had one of the like best comedic lines that I can remember in the last like few years. That doesn't shock me at all. Yeah. The dude's really funny. Yeah. So, fun, fun Thumbs movie. Up. Yeah, all right. It's a good time. Uh, I saw a drastically different movie than that this weekend um, that I also liked a lot. Uh, it's called Leave No Trace. It was directed by the same woman um, who did Winter's Bone uh, back in 2010. Is this is 100% or? Is it? I'm pretty uh, sure. Yeah. Oh, I didn't even check. Um, yeah. Have you seen Winter's Bone? No. Have you seen Winter's Bone? I haven't. I heard it's really good. It is really good. Um, so that is the movie. The director is named Deborah Granick, I believe is how it's pronounced. Uh, that's the movie that discovered Jennifer Lawrence. Um, she found another young talent uh, for this one who just absolutely kills it, uh, Thomason McKenzie, who I've not seen in anything else. I looked her up on IMDb. She doesn't have that many other credits, but you could not tell based on her performance in this movie. Uh, the premise is that uh, McKenzie plays uh, the daughter to the Ben Foster character in this film. Uh, they are, uh, the, the pair of them live in the woods and somewhere in the Pacific Northwest. Uh, they're not super clear about where specifically. Um, they are in a sense homeless but really just have carved out a life for themselves in this national park. They are eventually discovered by the government and the government tries to, or not tries, but successfully removes them from this park and places them in a home in a more conventional society. Um, so I think it would have been very easy for this movie to be about how the big bad government comes along and tells people that you can't just like do what you want to do and live your life how you see it. But instead, the movie takes another more interesting step where it becomes about the value of community and how you can still live a life that has autonomy and that is fulfilling and happy and guided by your desires while finding value in the people around you and, the, and, and what you, you gain from others. Um, it's also a movie about trauma. Uh, the Ben Foster character, is, it, they never say it explicitly until the very end of the film, but he is a war veteran and he has some kind of post-traumatic stress disorder that drives him away from large groups of people and from large cities. But the interesting thing about it is that the trauma does not manifest in an outburst and it doesn't manifest in him having some sort of freak out scene. It manifests in him being totally unable to interact with other people in a conventional society such that he removes both him and his daughter from that society. Mm -hmm. And it is, I don't, I don't want to say any more about it than I already have because that's kind of like the bulk of the plot right now, but it's a, it, it was a beautiful movie, beautiful to look at, very uh, simplistic, realist style of filmmaking similar to something that you'd see in uh, like a, a fish tank or American Honey, films like that out of Great Britain. Um, and I, I really can't recommend it strongly enough. It's mm. one great performance after another, and I, I really liked it a lot. Um, the movie is called Leave No Trace, and and everybody should go watch it. It's super good. Yeah, but Crossman, you had a, a kind of a different take for us this week, right? Yeah, I uh, read an article I thought was interesting and relevant. Um, so this comes from the Blacklist blog. Um, it's written by a writer named Kate Hagen, uh, who I don't know anything about. Um, but she wrote an article called In Search of the Last Great Video Store. And it just talks um, about like what happened to video stores and her experience like trying to find an obscure but not so obscure film that 
um, came out in the 80s, and she was struck by her inability to find this film, even though it had like known actors in it mm -hmm. and it was like released in theaters. Um, and uh, then I think what's most interesting about the article is actually the uh, the stats in the article. So I'm scrolling to the place I thought was interesting. Um, so it said um, in 2004 there were 9,000 blockbusters operating in North America. And in 2007, there were uh, 4,500 movie galleries in North America. Um, and then by 2010, mo both chains had like gone bankrupt. And I, I, the, a lot of the bulk of the article is kind of dealing with, well, like, well, now what? And do we, is it better now? Because um, what bankrupted both of these Netflix. chains was Netflix. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and. Uh, it kind of gets into the like availability of of variety in in film. Um, so one of the things that's interesting is uh, so the red boxes, which are ubiquitous mm -hmm. now in convenience stores and grocery stores Every and stuff CBS. like that, yeah. um, only carry up to, uh, like about like two hundred different titles. Mm -hmm. um, and Netflix itself has actually been dropping the amount of films that it supports. Yeah. Um, so it's gone from. Uh, just under 7,000 to about uh, 3,000 at the time of like the article being written. Um, and uh, let's see, there's another one that was interesting here. Um, uh, like a normal blockbuster would have carried like an estimated like 10,000 titles at the time. So right. it's just like extraordinarily higher <coughs> than what we have mm -hmm. available. Uh, Amazon actually does support a large number of films. So they say they have about 20,000 titles in their library. Um, but they're kind of unique in that. Both both Hulu and Netflix like really don't have a lot of titles. And I've I've looked for films on Amazon that I've had trouble finding as well. And then I had to like order on a like special DVD and then order a DVD player to like watch them. Yeah, well, we had um, that experience recently with Princess Mononoke. Right? Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 The studio Ghibli films are not available. Like on super the popular movie that you can't scream. Yeah. Um, so there's there's like a few like last remaining video stores that are like uh, still around. Um, so in LA there's a store called uh, Vidiots, mm -hmm. and in Seattle there's like the the video mecca, um, this place called Scarecrows, and they have like 131,000 titles. Okay. But mm -hmm. the, but these are like few and far between far between stores because like video rental just like really doesn't exist anymore. Hard to sustain though. Yeah, um, and so. I don't know if she comes out and says this uh, directly, but like the crux of the article is like things were supposed to be better with the internet, and Maybe we're not. supposed to have more variety and access to like more information at at all times. And clearly, the like the opposite has happened. That you know we have much less information available to us now because of like this change that's occurred. Um, we have like more access, but yes. Variety is not what we're what we're getting out of this, and the the focus is really much more on like TV now, or Netflix is like ramping up its investment in TV, where it's shrinking its like access to films. Yeah, um, well, well uh, you're yeah. starting to see more specialized streaming services, right? Which really means you yeah. have to subscribe to more streaming services, mm -hmm. right? So you have things like Filmstruck, which I have mentioned before in glowing terms, and will continue to endorse. Um, and also, you, like Shudder, like the, the, it specializes in horror films. You, you, you're going to see the Disney vault streaming thing within the year, probably. 
right? I think we're going to start seeing more of, of that, like where, where you have these specific streaming services, almost certainly ones that I'm not aware of, that are going to be catering to a certain type of movie or a certain type of, of audience. I'm torn. Like, I don't know if it's better or not. I mean, I think in terms of, like, what these services are is not the, like, original, like, libertarian intent of, of the Internet, um, where it's, like, all information at all times is clearly right. not what's occurred. Yeah, that's true. Um, and so this, like... That doesn't mean it's worse than what we have. That's true, but yeah. like you, you had access to a lot more film and film history prior. Yeah. Maybe right, like because I, I grew up in the, a relatively small town. I worked at one of these video stores, and the library was okay, right? But you'd see plenty of old movies that just like the tape gets run out and like that's it. Like you can't mm -hmm. use it anymore, or you know they they just don't restock. They they've only so much shelf space, right? And so they just physically can't carry that. Yeah, and like eighty percent of the shelf space was like new whatever releases. the new movie was because they had to have them in stock, right? right? So, so like all the shelves were just like a hundred copies of the new thing. Yeah, exactly. Um, and but there's there's still like many multiples more variety that like was available at the time. I'm not like and the, you, you go ahead. The, like the focus right now, like clearly uh, in the in the article gets into it is like the percentage of movies that are from like the last five to ten years on these services is like. Way like they're not historical catalogs. That yeah, that's the biggest yeah. problem, and I think yeah. that's what we lost. Like when when Hulu lost Criterion, I think that was a big deal, and they didn't even have the whole Criterion collection at the time, uh, <laughs> and 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 that's significant and, and and well heard. And again, why I like Filmstruct so much. But like I feel like if you leave the subscription-based services and you go to things like Vudu for renting movies, yeah. they have. They, they've had everything that I need to look for. I guess they don't have Princess Mononoke. They do not. Yeah, but like I feel like they've had just about everything, even when Netflix or Hulu have holes in their coverage. Yeah. I'll and, generally and be able to find it there. And like, and it's much easier to get people to watch movies if they can just sit back on their couch and boot up their phone and get a movie there immediately. That, you, the, you lower the, the activation cost of it. Yeah, that I think is actually a not insignificant matter. Like, it's, access is one thing, but people actually watching the movies is, is another thing. And those are different, they're, they're different concepts, right? And if we want more people watching more movies, maybe the streaming services are doing that for us. Yeah, like back in the day, if I ever had a craving for a specific movie, uh, it often was too much to have to find a way to get to the video store because sure. like, I lived in the suburbs, right? So I, I would need someone to drive me when I was a kid uh, to go down there and find it. Maybe Blockbuster wouldn't have it because they didn't have everything. It wasn't that big of a store. Mm -hmm. uh, or like originally Netflix, you had to like mail the DVD and it would take days. And then they still do that. You don't want to, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, maybe you don't want to watch it anymore. Yeah, the article it gets into that a little. Yeah. About so, how their DVD service still exists. Yeah, which I, I don't know anybody that, that does that. Apparently, they still make a lot of money on it. Yeah, okay. And the article like gets into that. Yeah. Well, I suppose like there are there are towns that have not great internet service. Period. Right. Yeah. Do so they have a different catalog as well? Like more yes. movies available? It, yes. Yes. It's much larger. Yeah. That's important. Um, and so, the article also touches on that that there are a few blockbusters that still exist. The one um, in Alaska. There's three in Alaska. Three in Alaska. <laughs> and there's okay. like three. There's another chain <laughs> where there's three other locations. Yeah, okay. In Alaska. Specifically, because the internet sucks there. Okay, that interesting. Makes sense. Yeah. Okay, um, and they were individually franchised, 
So huh. the like individual owner was able to like keep them open. Right, and just orders a bunch of DVDs every week. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Intro well, Blu-rays yeah. now, I guess. Um, so it's an interesting article. Um, I guess we'll we'll post it. Yeah. Um, but I think the numbers are are pretty stra staggering and, and interesting. And I think um, yeah, it's it's fascinating what how how uh, how it's changed it's yeah. so rapidly. Well, and part of it is like you want to watch random rom-com from the '80s, right? That isn't pretty in pink. And if you're the one of the narrow audience members for that, like it. It has to be justified to the studio to make it available on a streaming service. It has to be justified to the service itself to purchase the rights to it, right? Where as opposed to when you were at the video store, they just needed to buy one copy of it, and then they just have it. Yeah. Right. And that costs well, them. That justify the shelf space. Yeah, they don't have enough shelf space for everything. Yeah, I guess, but I don't know. Like I, I remember what there, the other video store in my in my hometown before they went under. Like if. It wasn't on the shelf. You could just like ask them, and they had a big catalog, and you could just say like, "Do you happen to have this movie? Whatever it is." And they, you know, often did, even if it wasn't sitting on the shelf. Mm -hmm. So the, the you have to justify that on fewer levels when it's a video store. Yeah, I, we don't need to get too deep into it, but it, it does speak to the like the uh, intensity at which like algorithms control yeah. our selection. So it's like like you your reference here if you you know type in rom coms pretty pink comes up because that's yep. like the one, and because more people watch it <coughs> then the like algorithms like keep recommending people really same. like this movie that we tell them to watch right exactly yeah. <laughs> um, and there you know there are things outside of of the algorithm that are good and interesting and mm -hmm. important and um, because serendipity doesn't exist anymore because we don't go into a store and just find a film we've never seen yeah. before. You know that that is an experience that doesn't exist, and that that is going to change things. Like that yeah. changes what, it, how, and what people consume. Yeah, yeah, it changes. It in effect changes film history. Yeah, because you lose things mm -hmm. because of the way algorithms work. So, um, yeah, that's a bummer. Yeah, that's important. Okay, so <laughs> in that vein, what deep cut, historically significant film are we watching next week, Crossman? Uh, I wanted to watch another summer film because okay. we're at the height of summer, and Charles is going to South Brooklyn soon, actually. That's true. So I would like to watch The Warriors. Yeah, okay. Yeah. <laughs> as soon as you said South Brooklyn, I was yeah. like, okay. Yeah. <laughs> there it is. Uh, nice. So The Warriors. Is okay. What we'll watch. I should finally it. back it up when I cheer on the Golden State Warriors. There, yeah, this is yeah. this it's, is really. It's about the formation of the team. The, yeah. Well, yeah, it's about how, how they signed KD. Um, <laughs> all right. Anyway, uh, thanks for thanks for listening, everybody. If you're liking the show, please share it with people. We do not advertise, uh, so the only way that other people find out about it is if you tell them. Um, so please do so, and join us next week for The Warriors.